This is the Passive Real Estate Podcast, the premier podcast for passive real estate investors. Matt Jones interviews experienced passive investors who share their industry secrets and active investors who show you different ways to invest passively. Welcome back. I'm Matt Jones. And today on the Passive Real Estate Podcast, I welcome Derek Clifford. Welcome, Derek. It's great to have you on the show. Matt, it's an honor to be here. Thanks for having me today. Excellent. Uh, what would you like the audience to know about yourself? Well, man, um, it's it was a long road to get here. Very signed winding, winding, very, very like odds place. But uh, I am... I have retired myself from my full-time job, and now I am a digital nomad with my wife. Uh, we have six pieces of luggage in our car, and that's what we use to basically call whatever Airbnb that we're at our home. Um, and today we're in Austin, Texas, but uh, we're getting ready to head out to New Orleans. Uh, and then followed by that, we'll be out in uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee. And then later in the year, we'll be in Arizona and also in Phoenix. Um, as well, celebrating the holidays with some family. So um, very blessed life that we live, um, but basically started as a chemical engineer, uh, started investing in single family homes with my high paying job, uh, and then started to do some 1031s, took my whole uh, single family portfolio and started doing joint venture partnerships in multifamily real estate from, uh, from out of state. Uh, so I was living in California and I was doing this all in Indianapolis in the Midwest. Uh, and then from there, I got a little bit more education because I ran out of my own money um, and also my partner's money. And then while I was getting ready to uh, build up my contribution to the next uh, property, I started to learn how to raise capital from other people with some mentors and then started doing syndications. So within the last four years, we started in 2019, 2018. We grew from our first uh, multifamily property, which was a, a 17 or 18 unit property, to now, um, as of earlier this year um, and late last year, uh, having over 400 properties in our or 400 units in our portfolio, uh, and over a majority of them are joint ventures um, and basically uh, syndications that I am the lead on, both from the acquisition standpoint and also in the asset management position. So we're doing all of this while I'm traveling uh, and a full-time digital nomad. So it's really cool to live this life. Just so blessed and grateful every day to be able to wake up and do it. Oh, congratulations. And, and when did you make that transition from your, your job to doing real estate full-time? That was in 2021. So a couple of years ago, actually, uh, back in September, 2021, that was my last day in my full-time job and haven't looked back since. Oh, nice. And then these, uh, 400 plus uh, units, are they like a single family, small multifamily, medium, larger, uh, what sort of deals? They are all in the multifamily space, uh, 75 units and under. But the way we do it though, Matt, is whenever we buy our properties, we try to buy properties that are maybe like 20 to 30 units in on a street or so, right? But then what we'll do is we'll start buying properties either right next to it or right across from it. Because then that way, you know, when we acquire these properties one by one, we'll be able to operate them the same and we'll be able to get a lower cap exit or basically a better price at the exit because we will treat them as a single entity when we end up selling them, right? So operationally, we'll be able to attract more investors because it's more units uh, under the same roof, even though we didn't buy them under the same roof. That's kind of our strategy. I see. I, I call this the Lego approach to investing where you're buying these you know, mid-sized multifamilies that are close to each other, and then you can operate at them together, you know, create some efficiencies more so than you could if they were like large, you know, large distance apart, for example. 100%. So um, why are you still looking for more deals that are you know below 75 units? <clears throat> yeah. So 
um, over the last couple of like months and years right now, um, the market's been doing some pretty interesting things. <clears throat> and so uh, now, even though our focus had been primarily on sub 75 unit properties, uh, we're starting to shift our focus to be more in like the, I don't know, 60 to 110, 125 unit space, because this is depending on where you are, but in the Midwest, especially that is where the unit counts start to, you know, you're not attracting the attention of some institutional buyers, right? So you have less competition, um, but you do have the on-site property management and you've got the extreme economies of scale that happens in that zone. So we want to try to move into that zone, more uh, elevate up into like the the upper B class range um, of the assets, just because we've been finding that the returns there um, are just as good or maybe even slightly better than buying at a low cost basis on a C-class property. The C-class property comes with a lot of headaches and some tenant issues, right, that you have to deal with. But, you know, because when you're um, newer to the game and you're recently starting, that's what you're looking for is you're trying to get some deals under your belt. You're trying to get some experience and some knowledge and get some brokers uh, to, to work with you. And so you got to come in with the capital you've got. And usually going into those C-class properties is where most people start. But now we're looking to get into more of the upper class properties just because the returns, even though it's a higher cost basis, um, the ability to be able to sell them also at a higher cost basis later, but not have any of the maintenance issues or some of the troubles that you would have on a C-class property just happens to be there. And so that's one of the reasons why we're reshifting our focus going forward into 2024. Uh, we're not buying anything in 2023, but uh, we're looking in 2024 to, to go in with a splash. Yeah, I like to say it's not so much what you buy the property for, it's how well you can operate it. You know, if you can keep those expenses down, like maintenance, for example, that really adds to the bottom line because now you're having a, you know, a better return on your investment uh, by by operating it with a, a higher NOI. Yeah, 100%. And I think that a lot of people think, um, you know, on paper, the C-class property will do well, um, but it, it's just that. It's just that it's on paper. And so you have to be really, really on top of it with your property managers. Um, so you have to be a fantastic property ma uh, asset manager or have a great asset manager on your team to be able to make sure you're seeing where things are headed. Because sometimes when you have a big enough property that's all C-class and you're moving in that direction, you see like the momentum moving in a bad direction. It is very hard to turn around if you're not involved on a daily or on a weekly basis. So that's something that we've been priding ourselves on, even though we have some C-class properties, we've been able to run them well because we're staying on top of it. It's just that it's so much work and energy to do that, to keep the returns. Might as well just go up into the higher asset class to you know, work with people, including tenants and property managers that are happy to be there, right? Uh, and C-class is not necessarily the case all the time. Sometimes they're renters out of necessity, not renters by choice. Yes, indeed. So I personally, I don't have a crystal ball to foresee the future, uh, but I'm wondering if you have any predictions yourself of where you think real estate will go over the next couple of years. Oh man, it's so tough. Mm -hmm. I think personally that uh, US real estate will continue to do well just because of the high demand. So right now um, it's tough to buy anything unless you're doing some sort of seller finance. At least that's my, that's, that's what I've been seeing. Um, at least in the Midwest and the operate the markets that we operate, just because the cash flow doesn't make any sense. If you're going to make an offer, you got to come in with like fifty to sixty percent down in order to make the leverage work, um, and then that dilutes all the returns for the investors, at least from my perspective. So, I guess in summary, looking forward in the next couple of years, I, I don't have a crystal ball like you said, but my guess would be that we're going to start to see some distress. We're going to start to see some 
things fragmenting and happening in the next year or two. Um, and then either the job, if the job market starts to give way, then we're going to start to see rates drop. Otherwise, I don't think that the that the Fed necessarily cares about what happens with commercial real estate and with the investors who put on took that risk. And what's happening, Matt, is a lot of people are counting on, you know, all of these operators to go under, right? And there will be some of that because some people have underwritten extremely liberally, right? They didn't take conservative underwriting to heart. And my thought is that because I've been seeing this, the operators that are responsible, so at least a subset of some of these operators that will be in distress in the next year or two, right, with the loans expiring and not having an exit strategy, I'm starting to see some of those lenders giving more breaks to the current owners and giving them some extra time with the current deal they've got. Maybe not full, you know, a full rate, you know, full rate markup, but they're probably finding some middle ground to where they're breaking even on cash flow to give them a little bit of time to exit. But that's the that's the key is I think what are banks willing to do to not have to foreclose on these investors uh, and these owners and these operators? And what is the, the labor market going to look like in the next 12 months? Because right now it's like on fire still, which is hard for me to imagine. <laughs> but honestly, I think if investors want to keep tabs on what the economy is going to do, just watch the job market. I think that is the that's the absolute key. Yeah. And there's certainly a delay from what we see in the like stock market, for example, to what happens in real estate. But uh, I agree with you that um, you, you know we're going to see maybe a few of these bigger deals go belly up, but it won't happen as much as maybe some people think, because you're right, there's going to be things like angel investing or capital calls or, or uh, you know uh, sales to, to just keep the deals going or, or at least to pull some of the money out. Yeah. And, and I would also say too, that like the the United States is still a place where um, people want to be. There's a lot of demand for people to live here. And as rates go up, this is why multifamily is so amazing, is that when rates go up on housing, the people who want to buy a house can't now because they can't afford it. So they have to live somewhere. So as long as the population in the United States is growing, then that means that in general, there should be plenty of strong demand. And when you have strong demand, the prices stay propped up, right? So um, if you're in a country that was declining in population like Japan or China right now, it is not a good time to be a real estate investor over there or to even own your own home. Because by the time you know you end up wanting to sell five or 10 years down the road, there's going to be less population. And if there's less population, there's less demand. And if there's less demand, then you have to offer at a lower price. Oh, for sure. I, I've heard that uh, China's population is supposed to cut in half by the end of the century. So oh gosh, <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. Yes, indeed. So, um, but you're right about America. I think, uh, you know, immigration is really driving and will continue to drive even like when Europe, uh, their population is expected to decline over the years as well. Uh, but America will continue to grow because of primarily because of immigration. Everybody yeah. wants to live here and I don't blame them. Yeah, of course, man. We have some things that are just incredible out here. Right. And the energy situation that we've got with having our own energy independence technically. Um, and then, you know, the fact that we have uh, infrastructure that still works <laughs> and social systems and, you know, you can't bribe people to, for, for title to take title on someone else's property, right. Which you can do in other, in other countries around the world, all of that stuff leads and a great entrepreneurial environment right now, still best in the world. All of those things are just leading me to believe that I should be very bullish on the U S long-term um, at least while you and I are alive. Um, who knows what'll happen after that though? Oh yeah, that, maybe there'll be a zombie apocalypse by then. Who knows? <laughs> yeah.
So uh, tell me about uh, your group, uh, the Elevate Equity. Like, what, what uh, what's it like for passive investors to invest with you? Yeah, so you know, I take approach. I, I'm I'm an engineer, and I am an operator, and um, you know, I I end up bringing my own capital into my own deals. So when I do have an investment, it's usually something that is underwritten with great fundamentals, mostly looking for cash flow um, in commercial real estate. Include you know mostly residential, but also we're looking at self storage and some other asset classes. But for the most part, you're going to get monthly reporting, um, full access to me, and you know any of the skills that I have, including building automations for investors um, or just providing information about where the current market's at. Um, I like to over communicate with our investors and then let my investors figure out how they want to be you know how how they want to receive the information. So. For me, um, I really want to be there, and I really do consider all my investors my partners uh, because I really want what's best for them. Because my ideal goal is to have a nice house up in the Colorado mountains and have all of my investors with me just enjoying each other, right? Enjoying each other's company. Um, and so that is really the goal that's really been kind of driving me towards that. Uh, and I know that we'll be able to create financial independence for all of us, right? I talk about the three degrees of freedom, which is location freedom, time freedom, and financial freedom. And all the people there in that house with me up in the mountains in Colorado, in this oasis out there, right? Um, they all have that. And so that's really what I'm trying to find is people who are pursuing or in pursuit of the three degrees of freedom um, and that are also part of our valued investor network and they're helping each other. We're helping each other. Uh, and then I'm investing in other people's deals there as part of that group. So I'm really trying to build a very strong networked community that has a specific focus in creating freedom for each other. Nice. Uh, tell me a little bit more about these three degrees of freedom and what they mean to you. Yeah. So three degrees of freedom is, like I said, location freedom, time freedom, and financial. And when we realized early on that freedom doesn't necessarily have to come all at once because that's the the misconception that everyone has. Everyone thinks, oh, you know, when I leave my full-time job, I'm going to be free to do whatever I want to do. But that's not the case because what happened with my wife and I is we looked at, okay, how can we be locationally free first? Actually, location freedom just happened to us. And what ended up happening was, you know, I was working a full-time job and we started traveling. Like COVID hit, you know, my wife had a, uh, she's a physician. So she had a brick and mortar practice that she was working at. She went online. She started talking to her patients virtually. I had a job that could be done virtually and had to be done virtually. So we started traveling around. And then we started realizing that you can do a lot of living across the United States with a lot less than what it took to live in the Bay Area. So our passive income goal was X, right? Um, but that was because we were living in the Bay Area and it really only was like half X or even a quarter X of what we really needed to make in order to be passively, you know, um, financially free in, in the Bay Area. So as we became locationally independent, we realized with our finances, even booking Airbnbs all across the country, that we were already financially free. So it was that location freedom that tied it, that, that unlocked it all. So I encourage people to think about degrees of freedom as like layers of the onion. They can be tackled one at a time. They don't have to be taken all at once, right? You peel off the location independence, right? That you can do with the full-time job. That's going to give you a taste of what it feels like to be able to have full control of your choices. And then you're going to start to work on your time freedom, which is then bringing in a virtual assistant, right? 
to help you do some of your tasks, right? Or help you build automations and systems. That's what I'm an expert at. And that's why I'm able to travel the world and spend only four hours uh, a week on my portfolio because I have all these systems and people working for me to help do what we do with our, with our apartments. And then of course, the financial freedom is what we're talking about. It's all the apartment investing, right? And making sure you're investing in the right apartments. So the three layers are independent of each other, but people treat them as all in one. And that's what we're so passionate about is trying to distinguish between the three because they can get tackled at each individual at any time that you want and in the priority that you want. Excellent. Sounds like you read the book, uh, The 4-Hour Work Week by Tim Ferriss. <laughs> yes, I did. Just a few times. Yeah, Excellent book, by the way. It was. But, all right. Uh, so when passive investors are, are looking at different syndication sponsors, like you mentioned, some of the things that I personally look for, I, I want somebody who's putting their money where their mouth is uh, by investing in the deal themselves, has good transparency, good communication, a, a solid track record. Uh, so how can a passive investor determine whether or not you and your team are a good match for what they're looking for in a syndication sponsor? Yeah, I mean, I would just speak to the investors right now, and it doesn't, it, it may not be me, um, because finding the right investor, like there's a whole bunch of layers and things that you need to, uh, that, that, that a bunch of green lights that you have to go through. Right. And uh, among all those things, you know, reputation, experience, triangulating with other LPs that have invested with that partner, right? Like those are things you need to check on. But I think beyond that, something that isn't talked about much, if you have a spouse or you have someone in your life, that's really good at reading people, have them sit in with you, ask questions to that person you know, with that person next to you. So you can see whether or not that person can gauge the genuine, the genuineness or the authenticity of the person of the actual operator that you're working with. That saved us so many times because I brought my wife in to help do that. And it was, it was a, a game changer. Um, so definitely doing that. And then also I would say, look at their communication style when they're doing their investor pitch or when they're first meeting you, that is them putting their best foot forward. So understand that with that best foot forward, how are you being treated? How are they talking to you? Do they have, as Dave Ramsey calls it, a heart of a teacher? And so if you don't find someone that has a heart of a teacher, that means that they probably won't be able to, they won't be willing to make time for you when you really need it. Like come tax time, right? With this K-1s or whatever. If they're not a giving person and they bring up a whole lot of red flags for just incompatibilities of your personality um, or to your spouse, it's like, I just don't trust this person. Um, those are all things that you need to listen to that are all intangible, that are not so obvious. Excellent. Then uh, what's the problem that you encountered with one of your real estate investments and how was it handled? Uh, yeah. So one of the, I don't want to get into too much details, but I had a partner that was very, very difficult um, as a joint venture with me and everything went wrong on this deal. I'm not going to get into this because this is like, I, I've mentioned this before on other podcasts, but it was, it was very difficult to, to go through this process. Um, but we ended up working it out. And I think that, um, I, I think how I dealt with this partner was really just, I actually seeked counsel from my spouse and I sought other investors who were having the same difficulty of just incompatibility, like language mismatch, a cultural mismatch as well. Just things that, that were, it was very difficult for me to align up face to face with this individual. We didn't have like the same approach when it comes to addressing maintenance or addressing asset management. Um, and we gave ourselves a break. We had the hard discussion about whose role was, was what, who was doing what, and then leaned on, at least I leaned on my spouse for support when I was really frustrated. But 
I was so close to selling this property at a, at a very big loss, uh, but I'm really glad that we did. And now that we have our roles carved out, that was one way very early on for me to learn that you got to have that definition straight from the beginning. Even though we had an operating agreement, we didn't have definition on who was going to do exactly what in the business and who was supposed to do what. And when there was line crossover, people need to get called out. And I wasn't calling it out. And now I've learned to become a more strict person um, and be less accommodating when it comes to sticking with the rules or not sticking with the rules, I mean. Yep. When you partner with somebody on a deal, it's essentially like a marriage for the length of the hold period of that particular property. Yeah. So it's uh, important to have that good communication, those good 100%. rules. And I, I really like your piece of information that you gave today that I hadn't heard before was bringing your spouse in uh, to... Um, you know, at least see, you know, have their perspective of what they think of the particular deal or the syndication sponsor. I think that's really valuable. Even if your spouse doesn't know that much about real estate, they can still pick up on things that maybe you didn't uh, catch in the first place. Yeah. And, and, you know, they can even ask questions to the operator and see how the operator answers, right? Like Mm -hmm. if an operator can't explain to, you know, essentially a five-year-old or a 12-year-old how everything works, then that's also a big red flag too it may mean that the operator doesn't necessarily know the numbers or doesn't know the operations behind it. And so if you know the answer to this, but your spouse doesn't, and then you hear the operator say something that's really odd, that happened to us a couple of times. So, you know, it just, it's, it is a, it's something, it's my secret weapon. My wife has been the source of my strength for a lot of things outside of real estate as well. And so I figured why not extend that out to, you know, finding good part, good partners to work with. Yeah, makes sense. I mean, there are a lot of people out there who don't necessarily know what they're doing, but they're decent at faking it. So that that sort of a line of questioning can uh, bring that to light. 100%. Okay. Are you ready for a speed round? Let's do it, man. What's your favorite part about passive real estate investing? Oh, man. Um, you mentioned it before. It's like the Lego block thing, right? It's like every time you get a passive income check that comes in repeatedly every year, it's like, okay, I got my car cover, my car payment covered. Then the next one comes in, right? All right, now I got my groceries covered. And so every it's like a, the gamification of you know being able to park your money to, to work hard for you and then have it slowly start to take over some of your personal expenses. Excellent. Cool. And what do you know now about passive real estate investing that you wish you knew when you first got started? <laughs> well, um, passive investing is the best and I absolutely love it. However, you know, for those that don't have infinite pockets, um, I have to be an, an, op- an active operator. I have to be the one that's serving passive investors. So for me, I always uh, I thought that maybe all the aspects of investing in commercial real estate was completely passive, even for the even for the operator. But I found out quickly that that was not the case, you know. Um, and so I kind of wish I had known that early on, um, just because I would have approached syndication a little bit differently. I would have done syndication straight from the get go. Uh, instead of doing some joint ventures uh, in the beginning, at least the number of joint ventures that I've done before that. Sure. And uh, what's a book recommendation that you can make for other investors? Oh man, there is so many. Um, I'm going to do two. Uh, The first one is a general mindset book uh, is called Atomic Habits. I'm sure that's mentioned before, but man, habit stacking and you really using your psychology as a weapon to help like get stuff done is amazing. So hacking that habit pattern routine for yourself is like one of the most important things you can do. Uh, as far as another book that I would mention um, would be uh, The One Thing by Gary Keller. Having focus and maintaining consistency and like, you know, 
maintaining that is, is really, really important um, throughout the day. Like if you have the one thing to focus on, what would that be? And, you know, once, once you have that, then everything else kind of falls into place after that lead domino falls. Mm-hmm. Both excellent books. I highly recommend them as well. Yeah. How, how can our listeners get in contact with you if they want to learn more about what you have going on? Yeah, absolutely. Check out our podcast. It's called the Three Degrees of Freedom podcast. Um, or you can check out um, a, a free ebook, an interactive ebook that we prepared for you to figure out whether or not you're ready for passive or if you want to do active investing. Also, if you want to start buying houses and doing your own stuff, um, just go to elevateequity.org.org forward slash podcast gift, all one word. Um, and you should be able to get to that that lead magnet very quickly. Great. And then is there anything else you want to mention that we haven't covered yet? No, I would also say everyone out there should consider what degree of freedom you're mainly going after. Because sometimes people are looking for location independence. They just want to travel, right? You may be much closer to that than you think. If your reason for getting financial independence is to travel, just get a job that allows you to travel. Get a job that allows you to have a remote situation and test out that thesis. Because what if you end up spending all of your time and energy trying to build something that you don't even like in the end? So start testing that out. Don't look at financial freedom as the end all, right? Look at it instead as layers. You've got location independence, time independence, and financial independence. Which ones do you want the most and start prioritizing how to get there for each one? Very good. Well, thank you so much, Derek. I appreciate all the value that you've offered our listeners today. And I hope you have a great rest of your day. Hey, you too, Matt. Thank you so much for having me on. Subscribe to this podcast to stay updated on new episodes. Leave a review to let us know that you enjoy the content. There are tons of ways to invest in real estate that you can explore by reading Matt Jones's book called Book About Real Estate. It summarizes many top real estate books all in one. Find it on Amazon, Audible, iTunes, Google Play, or barnesandnoble.com. If you want to learn more about passive real estate investing, go to hawkwingcapital.com.